0: You're listening to Rabbi Arya Wulby, Director of Torch, the Torah Outreach Resource Center of Houston. This is the Jewish Inspiration Podcast. Welcome back. Uh, as we mentioned previously, we had two parts of Bitachon. Bitachon means trusting, relying on Hashem. We said there were two components to this. Number one is before the fact. So if you have something which is going to happen. You don't know yet what's going what's going to be. You don't know yet the it's before the fact. And that is the confidence that Hashem will fulfill our needs and help us in any way we need. This is the optimistic attitude we maintain as long as the outcome is yet to be determined. Then we have the after the fact. And the after the fact means once the outcome is determined, it is important to realize and recognize that everything is from Hashem. If you remember last week, we talked about this, and once the outcome is determined, the mindset is the practical application of our first principle of Amunah, namely, that everything comes from Hashem, and He alone did, does, and will do every deed. This mindset is the subject of our chapter, now chapter 3, and we're on page 37. Uh, We're going to start from the third paragraph. There's an old army expression that says, better difficult drills and easy battle than easy drills and a difficult battle. Whether we like it or not, the -the after-the-fact mindset of Bitachon, which calls for maintaining our unshakable trust in the Almighty after we come face-to-face with trials and tribulations, is a fierce battle. So that means it's never going to be easy for us to just accept the outcome, just because, meaning like this. We, we established, just to, to go back a little bit more, we established that in order to have Bitachon and trust in Hashem, you need to have 100% faith and knowledge of Hashem. You have to be concrete in your firm belief and knowledge in Hashem. Now that I know that Hashem is there, now I can trust in Hashem. That's the next level. You get your bachelor's and then you get your master's. You can't the bachelor's here, the basics is having the knowledge of Hashem's existence. I know that Hashem created the world. This, by the way, where everyone talks about that we were all created equally. Oh, created? Yeah, yeah. We were created. Who's the creator? Creator. Who's that creator? And we go. Hashem created each and every one of us. Each and every one of us were gifted with unique special abilities, and with unique challenges, by the way. Each one of us were gifted with challenges that if you think that, oh, I'm the only one who's struggling, nobody else is struggling, right? You're totally wrong. Totally, totally wrong. Every single person is facing a struggle, which is why the Torah gives us so much guidance into the proper way to conduct ourselves with interpersonal midot, characteristics, character traits to conduct ourselves appropriately so that we don't hurt other people, we don't offend other people, we love other people, and that we do it ourselves, by the way. You see, there are many people who say, you need to take in immigrants, you need to uh take in the homeless. But me? No, 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 not in my house. Like when they when they come up to Martha's Vineyard, that's not cool. That's not cool. Now the idea here is that the Torah teaches us, yeah, you know what we do? We invite guests into our home. We welcome them into our home. Us. We don't tell other people. We do it. We, we, we lead by example. And the Jewish people, that's our, our flagship. That's what the world looks for in the Jewish people, to be an example. Whether we like it or not, the after-the-fact mindset of bitachon, which calls for maintaining our unshakable trust in the Almighty, after we come face-to-face with trials and tribulations, is a fierce battle. Our arch-adversary, the evil inclination, the yetzahara, does everything in its power to reduce us to sadness, depression, and ultimate surrender with, with all types of pseudological claims that there's no hope and no one to depend on, heaven forbid. Anytime, we discuss this so many times, anytime we have worry, anytime we have concern, we have fear, anxiety, you know what that is? That's the little Yetzirah creeping into us saying, oh, it's never going to work out. Nothing's going to, you know, you're just a failure. You do nothing worthwhile with your life. And gives us all of that doubt. And we'll see soon. This is called the Amalek Syndrome. You know the nation of Amalek. We'll see about that soon. As a matter of survival. It's therefore vital. To learn the after the fact mindset of Bitachon Before facing a difficult challenge in life. Just as drills and maneuvers are so necessary before going into battle. Unfortunately. Most people are unprepared when life's unpleasant surprise ambushes them. Some rise to the occasion, but many others crack under pressure. We want, we don't want that to happen. In that respect, this chapter is a lifesaver, literally. What we're going to get, hopefully, from this chapter is the tools, the weaponry that is necessary to deal with after-the-fact bitachon, meaning... Something went that was not what we had wanted. All right. We got to that plane and they said, sorry, the flight is canceled. What do you mean the flight is canceled? I have a wedding to go to. So that's after the fact. The fact is you're not that flight was canceled, and now something that you were hoping was going to work out your way didn't with the decree of Hashem. And now how are you going to deal with that? How are you going to deal with that letdown? Okay. So, bitachon in times of trouble. Since no one on earth, no matter how it might seem otherwise, has a trouble-free life. Bitachon is a priceless spiritual asset. A person's level of true bitachon is gauged under fire when he or she is bombarded with troubles. Trying times put a person's bitachon to the test, as the Torah itself testifies In your distress, when all these troubles before you, not if, when, it's going to happen. We're all going to have that time where we're in total despair, when we don't know, what am I going to do? Uh-oh, it's all collapsing all around me. I don't know, right? We lost our job, and we have issues in our relationships, and our children, and our house, and our landlord, and our our employer, whatever the case is, it's all crumbling down on us. What are we going to do? Everybody has a situation like that. And if you think, oh, the millionaires and billionaires, they don't they don't have issues. Let me tell you. I met a few people in the past two days. Do you know the issues they're dealing with, with people who owe them money and with people who they did partnerships with that cheated them out of who knows how many digits of numbers, right? Unbelievable. I would hear story after story and people who like, on the face of it, everyone's like, oh, my goodness, I wish I was that person. But then you hear a little bit of the story as a close friend, and you suddenly realize it's not all roses and lilies. It's not so beautiful like everyone thinks it is. They're facing challenges that many of us may not ever be able to handle. You you said he stole how much? How many millions? right? And you're like, what? It's that, yeah, oh, I wish I had that problem. No, you don't, okay? Everyone's got the, their own set of challenges. If a person had to deal with trouble alone, the situation wouldn't be so trying. Financial problems, marital problems, and health problems are all painful, but they're not the end of the world. More difficult than the trouble itself is the impure spiritual force of the evil inclination known as Klipas Amalek, the husk of Amalek. I would call it the Amalek syndrome. The Socha Chavarebi writes that Amalek's weapon is despair, which cools and destroys a person's faith and trust in Hashem. If the trouble isn't challenging enough, Amalek's deceitful venom of doubt and despair poison the weak and vulnerable. Killing their hopes. A person with no hope or lost hope is easily vanquished. Bitachon, therefore, is our only protection against the Amalek manifestation of the evil inclination. The more a person strengthens Bitachon, the less he or she is weak and vulnerable. The process of strengthening ourselves in Bitachon is known in Hebrew as Hitchaskut. It means the strengthening. We learn emunah and bitachon every day, just like taking daily spiritual vitamin E and B. Right, vitamin E is emunah, vitamin B is bitachon, to keep ourselves strong. Our constant learning and internalizing the concept of emunah and bitachon are our maneuvers and drills in preparation for our next battle with the husk of Amalek. So what is Amalek? What did Amalek do to the Jewish people? It means he knew he wasn't going to win the Jewish people. The Amalekites knew there was no way they were going to take down the Jews. Egyptians were far stronger than the Amalekites. And the way our sages define Amalek is that there's a boiling, steaming hot tub of water, and no one wants to get close to it. It's bubbling hot. Everybody knows that if they were to touch that water, they'd burn. But then you have that one idiot who just jumps in, gets burnt. What happens? He gets burnt. But everybody else is now, okay, I can jump in too. Like it's not a big deal. The Jewish people were that steaming hot water. Everybody knew we were the untouchables. No one can get close to us. No one can fight with us. No one can overcome us. No one, ever. It was promised, by the way, in this week's Torah portion, last week's Torah portion, it was promised again to Abraham that your children, even in the worst-case scenario, I will always save them at the end. And and we see that, like, after the Holocaust, we got our state of Israel. We have a flourishing Jewish community, not only here in Houston. I'm talking about globally. It's un, It's unreal. So that blessing has come to fruition. The nations of the world know they'll never get rid of us. Yet, from where do they get the chutzpah to even try to mess with us? You know where they get it from? From Amalek. Let's constantly just beat them a little. Beat them a little. It's like a long war. And eventually they'll just give up. No. That's Amalek. When the Torah says to erase Amalek, to kill them all, it's not referring to going and stabbing little at babies. It's not what it's talking about. It's talking about removing all doubt. Removing all of the, maybe maybe we should just give it up. Maybe we should just forget about it. Maybe we shouldn't be so committed to our Judaism. Maybe that sowing of doubt is what Amalek is all about. And that's what we're trying to stay away from. And that's why Amalek is such a a fearful foe for us. A person's evil inclination is with him. Every thought, deed, and action all day long, and all lifelong, is essentially a choice between good and evil. But the Klipas Amalek, the Amalek syndrome, the impure spiritual force of Amalek, is that despicable dark side villain that attacks a person in trouble. It specifically comes when we're down. It doesn't come when we're all flying high, everything is going great, and then we have the doubt. No, then you have no doubt. Just by the way, beautiful idea. We say, We will sing your praise in the morning, we will talk about all of the kindness that you do for us, Hashem. But we'll have emuna, will have faith at night. What, what, what is that? Sages tell us a beautiful idea. During the day, what does day, day mean? Day means clarity. We're able to see. There's light. We have a clear vision. That's the time of life where things are going for us. You know what you should do then? Pack up your storage house with saying god's praise thanking hashem thanking hashem because what happens when you do that is you're putting into your storage house all of that emunah you're stuffing it with emunah then when it comes night and there's doubt when it comes night and and, and our vision is blurry not physically not physically nighttime but rather the conceptual nighttime of of, of doubt of confusion then then we will have emunah because we'll have it from all of the times that things were good and we recognize that it was from Hashem. So now when things are not so good and things are in doubt, we're able to pull those resources of, of what we praised Hashem earlier. And I think it's a very, very important perspective for us to have. When things are going well, don't just say, oh, a fluke. It happened to have been good. No. Hashem, thank you. Thank you. You had a good coffee this morning? Thank you, Hashem. I love you. Such a privilege, such an awesome gift. Thank you. Thank Hashem for every gift, because then there's going to be a time where things are not going to go so well. And we're going to be in the total despair. Guess what? You'll be able to pull from your reserves of your emuna cash flow of your from your from your uh, you're going to be able to draw on your savings of all of that emuna that you stockpiled. That's what we, That's what we... Why? Because when it's going to be dark, you're going to need it. You're going to need that. So what we're doing is here, what we're talking about here, is that he attacks us, the Yetzirah, when we're down. But if we strengthen our emunah, we have the tools to cope with it. The Torah alludes to this when it says, remember what Amalek did to you when you came out of Egypt. We were, We, we were tired we were weak when we came out of egypt don't forget it's 210 years of slavery that the jewish people experienced we were weak spirited we just went through the, the the sea and and here we are we're now in the desert he surprised you on the way and attacked the weak among you and you were faint and weary with no fear of god oh very important thing Let's identify. What does it mean, fear of God? What does it mean, fear of God? He explains. The above passage is the template for all times. The moment one's troubles overcome one's awareness that Hashem is with them, they lose fear of Hashem. What is fear of Hashem? Fear doesn't mean trepidation. Fear means clarity. Fear means clarity of Hashem. When one loses that clarity, and they are prone to speaking or acting, in an undesirable manner. In extreme cases, a person in despair might even curse or have temper tantrums. Why? Fear of Hashem means that a person feels Hashem's presence. They have clarity. They have clarity of Hashem's presence. Anyone is awed when they know that Hashem is right there with them. No one in their right mind would dear transgress if they felt that Hashem was right there with them, holding their hand. That's Yerash That is fear of heaven. Meaning having a, a clear, vivid realization that Hashem is there with me at all, at all times. Every morning you wake up, we say Modé. We don't say Ani. I thank you, Hashem. No, no, no. Thank you, Hashem. Thank you. First thing we do is say Modé. Thank you. Why? Because we want to start our day with the recognition of Hashem's presence. Everything we do throughout the day, our sages tell us, we're supposed to say 100 blessings every day. Why 100 blessings? Because we constantly need to remind ourselves that everything is from Hashem. So we have a little drink of water. We say a blessing thanking Hashem. We have a a cereal in the morning. We eat uh, bread. We eat snacks. We eat lunch. We eat dinner. We say a blessing every time before we eat. Why? To bring that consciousness of God into our, into our existence. So now I'm not just eating to be a physical consumer of physicality, of materialism, of fine dining. That's not what we're here for. We're here to serve Hashem. So now what happens is, if I eat that food not just to satiate my body, but rather to elevate me to, as a servant of God, the same action of eating happened, but for a totally different reason. The backdrop is completely different. Conversely, a person who forgets about Hashem or doesn't feel his presence becomes dangerously exposed to Amalek and easy prey. Such an individual feels emotionally faint and physically weary. That's exactly what the Torah describes when it says. You are faint and weary with no fear of God. Now, it's, it's also clear why they were weak. They were weak in that they haven't been able to internalize the message of God's existence in this world. They weren't able to bring it into a clear day-to-day reality. Why not? You know, what did Pharaoh do? What did Pharaoh do? Pharaoh was like the cell phone. We're busy all the time. We're busy all the time. Pharaoh wanted the Jewish people to be busy 24-7. There's no time to rebel when you're busy. I, I, I say about yeshiva, if kids are happy in yeshiva, we have nothing to worry about. In fact, they were uh, a group of Eighth graders in the graduating year, they went on their trip to New York. And right near New York is Philadelphia, and they went to Rabbi Shmuel Kamenetsky, the great rabbi Rabbi Kamenetsky. And he asked the boys, Are you happy? And he sees them all smiling and said, Yeah, we're we're very happy. He says, No, 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 are you happy? And like later on, someone asked them, you know, after the boys left, like Why you ask them so many times if they're happy? He says, because if a child is happy, you don't have to worry about them doing other things. You don't have to worry about them, you know, not being in the right place. If a child, if and this, by the way, human being, when are we unhappy? Rabbi Brody said this when he was here. It's a gem. He said it's standing right here where I'm sitting now. He said, you know why someone doesn't smile? because they haven't spoken to God yet. When you speak to God, you have no choice but to smile. If you didn't speak to God, that's why you're not smiling. Talk to God, you'll start smiling. It's an incredible perspective. The more the more our relationship with God is developed, the more confident we are, the more sure we are, the more comfortable we are. Trouble only worsens when people begin their desperate search for a natural solution, exclusive of Hashem, heaven forbid. They think that something else is capable of solving their problem or rescuing them. Instead of relief, they encounter even more worries, anxiety, disappointment, and depression. Once this happens, a person loses motivation to fulfill commandments, to pray, and to learn Torah. Whatever emunah they had not only cools down, it freezes. As such, the victim is immobilized and the evil inclination's victory is complete. So he's saying something which is so important here. If we don't have that overflow of emunah, if we don't have that overflow, that storage of of happiness, of motivation, then it's easy to, to be come to, to get into despair and to lose it. Uh, just an interesting thing. when I was in my previous job 18 years ago, I was facing tremendous tremendous stress, tremendous I mean my back was like a rock. I, I used to have I used to go I went I went I, I went to doctors, I went to special therapy, I was taking medications. It was crazy. All for one reason: I didn't have a clear relationship with God. My first time working, and someone had once told me that, "Oh, first job is your most important job. That's how you set your, you set your tone." As a, as, so, I'm like, okay, I have to, I, I have to succeed. Meet me, I have to succeed. It's all about me, right? So I was going to force success. Hashem was showing me, no, 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 that's not the way it works. That's not the way it works. Hello, am I in the picture, God says? Am I in the picture? And I remember uh, my mother-in-law brought me the book of mind over back pain, and I was going to to, to physical therapy, and I had surgery during that year. It was chaos. But I learned the hard way, bring Hashem in, and your stress will go out. Hashem li lo ira. I'll have nothing to fear when Hashem is with me. When I know that Hashem is with me a hundred percent, I have nothing to fear, and there's no anxiety, and there's no stress. And it doesn't mean that we never have points in life where we're weak, where we're in despair, sort of. But you know what? When you realize that Hashem's there, you stop. You say, okay, let's let's recalibrate here. Let's get started again, and let's. Get back on track. And there have been some times where I start feeling my legs starting to to stress up. Everyone stresses in different places. For me, it's my calves. They start locking. And it, and it happens usually when I'm driving. That's when I feel it. And I'm like, okay, I pull over to the side of the road. I close my eyes and I say, Hashem, you're in charge. I'm not stressing about this. I'm not worrying about it. I know you're going to take care of it. And you know what? 100% of the time he does. Because he takes care of it anyway. It's just that we don't know the outcome, and which is why we're stressed. And we're concerned, because I need to know everything now. And if I don't know it now, then I need to know what the future beholds. That's why when Moses was talking to God, God says, you can only see my my back, the back of my head, but not the front of my face. God has a face? No. Does the God have a back? No. So what does it mean? Like, what is God telling him? God is telling him the front means the future. You're never going to be able to understand the future. But you know what you could do? You can see the back. You can see the history. You can look back and say, you know what? In the last 20 years, the last 30 years, the last 40 years of my life, I see you took care of me pretty well. You were on top of things. You had things under control. Hashem, I can have the full trust that you will continue to do so. At what point does Hashem gain a credibility? You know, we build a credit. We build a credit score. Why do you, how does this credit score work? You buy a car and you make your payments on time. You have a home, you have a mortgage, you make your payments on time. You have a credit card and you make your payments on time. What happens? You build your credit. they like like, this person's a credible person. At what point do we say this person is trustworthy? After usually a few months already, we trust. Now, the longer the credit, the longer the credit history, the stronger the credit. And what's with Hashem's credit? For the 44 years that I'm on planet Earth, he's never missed a dinner. He's never missed a lunch. He's never missed a breakfast. There hasn't been a day that I was deficient in oxygen. Doesn't he get some points for, like, credibility? He's reliable? That's bitachon, is knowing and trusting Hashem has got control to take care of everything, and you know what? I went to visit a friend of mine last night in New York, whose father passed away. He was sitting shiva. So he said to me, and this this guy is, is a paramedic in Hatzala of Muncie of Rockland, and his father went to shul. His father had a stress test on Friday. Perfect. He went to Shul Shabbos morning. He walked to Shul, which is about mi- uh, three-quarters of a mile from his house. He's there, one of the first people in Shul. And he prays the morning ble- the morning blessings. And then you have the karbanot, which is the offerings. And then you say the shema. There's a shorter shema that you say then. He has a cardiac arrest, collapses, and dies. Right there in Shul. Now they called Hatzalah and Hatzalah tried to do CPR and they put him on the thumper and they took him to the hospital. They did, did everything that you could possibly do to try to revive him. You know what the son said to me? Hashem just wanted him back. You keep on trying to do whatever you want to do. Hashem wanted him back. He's Now he's back in Hashem's hands. He's back in his father's hands. So we have to accept that sometimes With all the trust in the world, yeah, Hashem knows exactly what is best. It may not be what we think is the best, but understanding that Hashem has a full picture of everything. And it was so beautiful to hear the children say, Hashem just wanted him back. They were at peace with that, the way they should be. Okay? Call his name. Now that we've identified the Amalekite enemy, the Amalek syndrome, and the way it operates, we go on the offensive. King David gives us our marching orders when trouble strike. I have encountered trouble and sorrow, but I call Hashem's name. When we are challenged, we don't despair, heaven forbid. We call out to Hashem. When we have an issue, We don't quetch and complain. We say, Hashem, I love you. I know that you're here. I know that you hear me. You hear my voice. Hashem, I need your help. Reb Nachman of Breslov, one of history's great masters of Hitchaskut, spiritual self-strengthening, writes that even if a person is at rock bottom, like Jonah the prophet said, from the belly of the netherworld, a person shouldn't fall into despair because he can still hope in Hashem. There's never, even if a sharp knife is on your throat, don't count yourself out for mercy. Reach out to Hashem. Talk to Hashem. Because He can still save you. A depressed person cannot solve problems or fight any battle. Indeed, when a person falls into despair, he or she becomes bewildered, disarmed, and disoriented. Their world becomes dark, and they can't see a way out of their tunnel of troubles. Yet, the moment a person simply reminds him or herself that Hashem is always here, no matter how thick the concealment might seem, he or she feels a spark of joy and encouragement. This is exactly what King David, history's greatest underdog and master of Hitchhaskut, of strengthening oneself, describes in Psalm 33 as follows, A person is in dire trouble or, face, or faced with a fierce enemy. A king is not saved by a mighty army, nor is a man of might delivered by his great strength. Although King David repeatedly encountered stronger enemies, he feared not. His bitachon, his trust in Hashem, enabled him to prevail. Conversely, he never depended on his own might or his army's military strength. He did the best he could and left the rest to Hashem. Our sages teach us that a person could be in despair. only if they disconnect from Hashem. If you're still holding on, if you're still holding on, you can be saved. You can be helped. You can be assisted. But if you leave go, the lifeguard can't get you out. You got to hold on to the tube. He's going to throw you the line. Just hold on. He'll He'll save you. And we can never let the spear get hold of us we have to try to do the best we can but then stop and let hashem just do his thing let him work his magic you tried to make that sale yeah you're going to you're going to force the sale you can't force the sale make your efforts you put your pitch you put your your presentation you put it out there not trusting your own talent your own skills your own suave i've got this no 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 Shem, if he decides that I will succeed, I'll succeed. And if he decides that I won't in this way, then I won't in this way. In King David's time, a cavalryman on horseback held a marked advantage over a foot soldier. His reference to a horse would therefore be similar to today's reference to a tank or an armored vehicle. The strength of the horse as he mentions in verse 17, is also an allusion to a relative advantage, such as the clever lawyer or a CPA who adeptly navigates all the tax loopholes. He doesn't put his trust in any of these and declares a horse's fall safety and its strength is a futile escape. You know, people can put their trust in other people. You can put trust in strength and might. and You look at the Israeli army, the Jewish army, the IDF, the Israeli Air Force, and nothing makes sense. You have every... Six-day war. We were attacked by 13 nations who had air superiority. They had manpower superiority they had tanks and every, you name it they we were outnumbered by it. like you you it's it's immeasurable 10 or 20 or 30 fold they were stronger than us and yet what how long was the war not 20 years it wasn't uh, some afghanistan war okay. 6 days and the jewish people declared victory 6 days you know why It's not about the horse. It's not about the the tanks, and it's not about the armored vehicles, and it's not about the Air Force. It's about the hand of Hashem. And I spoke myself, I spoke to an Air Force pilot who was in the Israeli Air Force during the Six-Day War. And he said that he saw his target ahead of him, and he has a clear target, and he shoots, and he gets him. But do you know what else he got? Like two other planes that he didn't even see just suddenly blow up. He's like, I, I, I wasn't even aiming there. He saw miracles, he said, and he became religious right after the Six-Day War. He said, I saw Hashem operate. I saw Hashem have opened miracles for me before my eyes. In fact, Rabbi Brody mentions this in his story that he said in Dallas. I was trying to think who it was. It was Rabbi Brody. Rabbi Brody, in his his presentation that he gave for Torch Dallas a week and a half ago, he talked about when he was in Beirut and he was surrounded by enemy gunfire, mortar shells, everything exploding all around him. He heard like some voice in his head telling him, Rafal Eliezer, it's time to do some teshuva. And he said, Hashem, I'm coming. You save me from this. And suddenly he sees these two F-15 fighters, Israelis, coming taking out all of the enemy installations. And then when he gets back safely to his base back in Israel, he says to them, who were those pilots that we're flying. Who were the paratroopers that came in and tourniqueted all of the other guys? Like, what are you talking about? We didn't send anybody in. We sent you as a suicide mission. There was nobody coming to get you. What are you talking about? You're hallucinating. And he remembers vividly how they came. There are miracles that happened. There are miracles that happened but that's not we don't rely on miracles you know you're not you're not allowed to put faith in miracles only in hashem not in the might not in our strength the verse tells us that don't rely on your strength don't it's not it's not your strength that brings you your success but the hand of hashem assistance from Hashem you know it's like in in uh in Psalm Psalm 146 King David tells us I'll don't put your trust in your benefactors in your donors in your investors oh I've got these investors they they're gonna take care of us they' they're gonna save our company they're gonna I'll then Adam in a person that has no power of redemption. His soul departs, he's gone. In that day, all of his all of the hopes that you put in him is gone. But what do we have? Hashem, who was, is, and will be the eternal will always be He's our constant. We can always rely on Hashem. The classic biblical commentator, the Radak, teaches that the inherent quality of those who fear in Hashem is that they look to Hashem for salvation and trust in Him rather than trusting in strengths or prowess of any kind. In light of the Radak's above teaching, we better understand what King David says in verse 18 of Psalm 33. Behold, the eye of Hashem is toward those who fear Him, toward those who yearn for His mercy. This is the key of the after-the-fact mindset of bitachon. If a person trusts his or her own prowess, Hashem says, fine, go lean on what you trust and see where that takes you. On the other hand, when those who fear Him, who fear Hashem, in other words, trust in Hashem alone, and look to Him for salvation, Hashem responds in measure-for-measure fashion by looking at them and at their needs. The four concluding verses of Psalm 33 show the beautiful dynamics of Bitachon. Number one, verse 19, those who yearn for Hashem, for hashem's mercy look to him to save them from death and to feed them in famine verse 20 our soul yearns for hashem for he is our help and our shield verse 21 our heart rejoices in him for you have trusted in his holy name and then verse 22 hashem have mercy on us for we look to you in times of trouble a person can't plea bargain with Hashem, asking for salvation by virtue of that person's good deeds. One never knows what demerits there might be in their heavenly dossier. Even more, if a person has a sense of entitlement, thinking that he or she is the brunt of divine unfairness or undeserved tribulations, then things only get worse. David Amelach, King David. What does King David teach us here? King David teaches us the power of relying on Hashem. Not because I deserve it. I don't deserve it. We don't know what the measures are in the heavens. We have no idea. We always have to assume that it's a 50-50 scale and the good deed that I'm about to do is going to tip it to the positive. It's a 50 50. We have no idea. Now, if we keep on going with that with that frame of mind, what's likely going to happen is that we will very, very heavily weigh on the virtuous side. And that's the hope is that we have more, way, way, way more merits than otherwise. <laughs> A person should never say, Kochi, my strength, the and my ability brought me this success. It's the most dangerous attitude for one to have. You know why I'm, I, I'm successful in my business? Very smart. That's <laughs> me. <laughs> it's my smart, right? My my skills, my my abilities. No, that's not why. Person needs to recognize that whatever gifts they were given is Hashem's. Hashem gives me the the strength. It's Hashem who brought me the success. There are plenty of smarter people who didn't make it. There are plenty of dumber people who did make it. Like King Solomon tells us. Lo lechem. It's not to the wise who get the bread, meaning the wealth. The wiser someone will be, the wealthier they are. That's not the way it works. There are plenty of dumb people who don't dot their I's and don't cross their T's and have magnificently successful businesses. And there are plenty of brilliant minds out there who dot every I and cross every T and double-check that contract, any risk, any of this, any of that, risk adverse. And they lose everything. Plenty of people like that. I want to leave off with one story. Fascinating story I read last week. It's such a moving story. I think I may have mentioned it actually last week. Who knows? Maybe I did, maybe I didn't. But it's an incredible story nonetheless. Moshe Reichman in 1986 was on the cover of the U.S. News and World Report as the second wealthiest human being on planet Earth. they They had $22 billion at the time. The only one wealthier than them was Rockefeller. And these were two brothers who lived in Toronto, Canada, who made enormous, enormous wealth. They they owned half of downtown Manhattan. I mean, these were really, really, really wealthy Jews. And they gave tzedakah like you can't imagine. They did have a policy, though, that they never gave more than 50% of the budget of an organization because they didn't want the organizations to be completely dependent on them. So they'd give 49% of the budget. So one time, Moshe Reichman, who was the wealthiest Jew alive, walks into someone's office, and somebody he was going to do business with, and uh, the secretary says, sure, I have a seat. Okay. Eventually, the uh, the person he was waiting for comes out of his office, and he sa- turns to the secretary. He's like, do you know what this is? Why is he sitting here? You should have brought him into my office right away. So she said, oh, I had no idea what it was. I thought he was just a beggar coming asking for money. So Moshe Rachman stands up. He says, that's the way you treat beggars? I'm not doing business with you. So there are two amazing things from the story. Number one is how he treated people. How he treated people who were poor. How he treated, he felt that they were his ticket to success. It's not that I have the money and you are in need and here I will help you. No, it's just the opposite. They are the righteous. And we are the ones who need merits. And they're giving us opportunity for merits. We have to stand up for them. We have to treat them with royalty. They're giving us mitzvahs that otherwise we wouldn't have. That's number one. Number two, he didn't carry himself like a billionaire. He looked just like the disheveled people who came collecting for tzedakah, collecting for charity. He was such a simple person in fact they say they say i don't know if this is true i haven't i haven't authenticated the story but they say that in his you know the people that have two wills have a will before they are buried and one after they say that he wrote in his in his first will i would like to be buried with my socks i would like to be buried with my socks Can't do that. Everybody knows that. They went to the rabbi, and the rabbi's like, can't can't fulfill that wish. I'm sorry. So they buried him without his socks. Then they opened up the second will. And the second will said, you see, even your socks you can't take with you. Even your socks you can't take with you. Don't think that your money is going to stay with you. Give it. Share it be righteous, be kind, be generous. Even your socks you can't take with you. I think it's such an amazing lesson of holiness, of feeling a sense of responsibility, understanding your role, understanding your relationship with God, and trusting Hashem has got our back. He's going to take care of us. He knows exactly what we need. He knows exactly who we are. He knows exactly exactly what he's doing. He's orchestrating a perfect world for us to strengthen our relationship with him. Hashem should bless us all that even when we don't know it, we should feel and recognize the connection with Hashem. That it's like a challenge comes out of left field. Guess what? Hashem, I know you're there. I know you Even if you don't feel it, say it. Because it will get you to the point where you feel it. Hashem should bless us. We should always feel it. We should always know it and feel that closeness, that friendship with Hashem. Amen. My dear friends, have a magnificent, amazing, terrific evening. Thank you so much. You've been listening to the Jewish Inspiration Podcast, a Torch production. Become a supporter at torchweb.org because your assistance enables more Torah learning around the globe. To find more lessons offered by Torch, please visit torchpodcasts.com.